Bob? I don't know a Bob. Do we know a Bob? Hey, you're listening to The Lodgers, Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined by Kate Renabon. Hello. And we're also joined by Mr. Ethan Vespi. That's me. Uh, Ethan has recently launched the premier, I was going to call it premier dirtbag left slash vulgar tourist uh, cinema podcast magisterial, but uh, maybe that's too many syllables. <laughs> yeah, you're boring people already, Simon. No one's going to yeah. listen now. <laughs> God damn it. Anyway, uh, these your podcast is called These Boys Are Good Boys. Uh, I recommend people check it out. You you uh, you recently had Adam Naiman on, yeah? We That was our second episode. Yes, Adam Naiman and Violet Luca, also of the Film Comment podcast. And uh, I won't say I have a favorite episode of the three we've done. They're all beautiful, but uh, <laughs> that might be a good first one to listen to, I'll just say. Fantastic. Awesome. And... Uh, so as we sort of teased last week, uh, this is the episode where we it's 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 part of the sprint uh, portion of season two, where we are sort of accelerating the pace, uh, talking about a few more episodes, both as a matter of timing, because, you know, we need to line up for when the new episodes start. And also because um, I think we can non-controversially state there is a quality dip that takes place in these episodes and for our sanity and yours, we are uh, not going to spend uh, a full hour talking about two episodes at a time. Uh, this week we are talking about episodes eight through 11 of season two. That is uh, drive with a dead girl, arbitrary law dispute between brothers and masked ball. I'm not going to go through all the credits just now. Hopefully no one is uh, is offended by this turn of events. We we did tease it last week, but I, I think most people who've who've watched the show before will agree that this was the only the only wise choice. <laughs> I mean, I think ideally, if we'd had if we'd had different uh, time, uh, more time left until the new Twin Peaks episodes, we we probably could have given just an episode absolutely to. Um, episodes 15 and 16, and I'm now realizing I'm using the other numbering system than what Simon just announced, but uh, we could have given an episode to just talking about Drive with a Dead Girl and Arbitrary Law, because they're, they're you know, still considered, like, very strong episodes in a lot of ways, and there there's a lot to talk about there. Um, but yeah, for timing reasons, it was it was getting to the point where we had to get four in, so um, we might end up focusing a little bit more on those first two episodes, just because they are, they are strong episodes still, so... I wanted to uh, quickly mention that it uh, came out this week that uh, Lynch will be bringing the first two episodes of the uh, new limited season to Khan, thereby giving him uh, an entirely new chance to get Twin Peaks booed <laughs> in France. There's a joke for all you fire walk with me uh, reception studies nerds out there. <laughs> yeah, deep dive. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it seems like based on when Khan is happening, that the screening is going to be more or less concurrent with when it's airing on television. At least that's what I'm hoping for also, because when I first heard that it was screening there, I thought, oh, that's going to kind of ruin sort of the mystery aspect and the the idea that we're all sort of hitting, you know, there's no screeners going out and we're all seeing it for the first time and there's sort of no preconceptions. But it seems like based on when Khan is happening, it's going to be pretty much the same time anyway. So it's totally fine by me. My, my inside knowledge people who know about these things suspect that even if it's that it'll likely be on the same day and it, it at most might play a couple hours 
earlier than when it'll show on TV, which effectively means there won't be any difference. So, yeah, it doesn't doesn't seem like uh, the con folk are going to get uh, an early preview, which I also appreciate. I I'm, I like that Lynch has been so fastidious about keeping everybody to the same <laughs> same level of knowledge about the show is great. So I myself morally oppose the idea of television being projected on a giant <laughs> screen. So. You know, it's funny that, that this is actually a whole debate in France now because there's uh, Netflix productions screening at Cannes and they're they're sort of bypassing um, sort of the, the French uh, cinema organizations. And so they're, they're not paying dues and there's this whole thing of, is the cinema, blah, blah, blah. No, there's also, there's a law on the books in France that says that anything, anything that screens... Uh, Oh god, I'm gonna forget it. it. There's like basically the cinemas are protected. They're given a 36 month window before something can play on a screening on a streaming service. So if it's a film, it has to they have to wait effectively like 36 months before it can play on a streaming service, which is insane. I mean, that's I, I appreciate that sort of as an, a, an attempt to uh, protect <laughs> cinema, but it's bonkers, especially because it would be playing on streaming services everywhere else in the world. Effectively, anyway. Um, wait. Oh, the French. The French. But so, but were uh, were you you were being quite uh, sincere with this uh, moral opposition to uh, things to television being proposed being shot shown on a big screen? No, but I do I do think it's funny. I mean, with every Cannes Film Festival, you read from the critics who are privileged enough to oh, be yeah, there, them oh, yeah. complaining about waiting, you know, three four hours in line and their colored badges, and I'll be like, Haha, I'm just watching it at home. <laughs> Agreed, agreed. Especially because Khan has made such a big deal out of this year is the first year that they've let television like besmirch their screens um, with uh, with Jane Campion's uh, return season of Top of the Lake and Twin Peaks, which of course are very curated choices of television anyway. But anyway. True Detective <laughs> season three is next. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so uh, Ethan, I, I know that you're sort of you're in with uh, with with that whole hip crowd of you know vulgar auteurists and and delightful contrarians. So how do you deal with uh, with a, a an almost universally beloved figure like Lynch? Where do you stand on on this guy? Well, I I will say I the f- I remember I saw my first two David not counting Dune, which I saw on VHS as a small child, but I saw nice. both Elephant, the Elephant Man, and Wild at Heart on television actually when I was twelve years old. And from that point on, Lynch is kind of, he's kind of been there for my entire cinematic life, so to speak. So I really cannot bring myself to be a contrarian with him at all. I, I consider Lynch someone who's almost in my blood in a certain way. There's no fronting there. I appreciate that. Uh, I can't imagine seeing Wild at Heart at 12. Was it edited for television? No, it was on the uh, IFC channel, remember that? Though, I remember the the Canadian equivalent of the IFC channel, I think, was worse than the American equivalent. Because I think the Canadian equivalent cropped films and had commercial breaks, where I think the American IFC didn't do that. So I saw Wild at Heart still not in quite the ideal uh, way. But I... Pretty sure unedited. With that being said, I guess we should uh, get into it because we've got a lot of Twin Peaks to get through. Um, I wanted to start by talking about uh, a, spe- a specific sequence in the first episode, Drive with a Dead Girl, uh, which of course immediately follows uh, the horrific events of Lonely Souls. And, you know, despite all the horror, there's a specific sequence that I was just blown away by that I completely forgot existed. 
and also doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything else around it. And that's Ben, ben and Jerry's vision. Yep. And I, I have some exciting tidbits about this sequence, but continue, oh, continue. No, for, no, I, I, no I, I need to hear the tidbits now. You were just going to wax rhapsodic about uh, this sequence with the girl on the carpet. I, uh, to be honest, it's always been kind of one of my most hated scenes. Like for me, it, it marks the beginning of the turn of Twin Peaks. I, I, I find it like aesthetically so ugly, that girl dancing on the carpet. But that is not the, the tidbit. The tidbit is that the girl dancing on the carpet is wait for it, David Fincher's sister. What? What? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Why? Emily Fincher. I forget. It's like she was, she knew somebody who was on set that it was something like some random thing where she knew somebody involved with the production. And this was Emily Fincher is the girl dancing. So I, that I feel like it almost redeems that scene for me. Almost. That's like another weird Twin Peaks dynasty thing. There's so many like weird dynasties kicking around. I mean, I guess we can mention this episode is written by Scott Frost. I mean, you can say Twin Peaks is really, for all the the Lynch involvement, the show is really a Frost family affair with Warren, Scott, and, uh, of course, Mark. Yeah, I think uh, Scott only wrote this this episode, I believe. Uh, it was like a one-off, yeah. which is, yeah, I mean, it's not bad for somebody who sort of steps in and has to pick things up right right after there's been a major reveal. I don't know. I mean, I think overall this episode does a good job of sort of keeping... Yeah, keeping the tension high after you've uh, had this reveal. I mean, we can hear everyone's sort of overview of the whole episode. I mean, I think the episode stands out mostly because you get Ray Wise getting to be Leland uh, and and do it so much. And now with the reveal of him being Bob, uh, Ray Wise gets to play it up so much more. That sequence where um, they tell Cooper and and Sheriff Truman tell him that Ben Horn has been arrested for the murder and Leland walks off and is at sort of looks to be crying from the back, but you get his, the shot of him from the front half of the face. I mean, that is like, he's doing this sort of Jack Nicholson and the shining level of like amazing kind of facial play. Like there's some fantastic stuff with him in this episode. Well, are we to assume that when he's, you know, as Bob, that anything he does is something Bob also enjoys. So we can assume that killer Bob enjoys golf Killer Bob enjoys all the music that he's listening to. He enjoys breaking the rules of driving, so on and so forth. Yeah, sure. We can we can do that. Hey man, Killer Bob has layers. He's not he's not he can't be Killer Bob all the time. He's got interests. He's gotta kick back and and uh hit, hit a couple of holes on the weekends. I, I should mention I think Frank Silva is as creepy as he is. I kind of have a, I feel a bit in the non Lynch directed episodes that he hams it up just a little too much there's there's a later episode that i'm sure will serve as the best example of this but i it's interesting if you ever see sylvan interviews uh the late silva we should say how he comes across as a theater kid kind of whereas you know he's obviously this such this natural creepy presence but then you see him and he's like Yes, I killed three people on last week's episode and whatnot. So I feel like you see that kind of in the uh, creeping out in the non-Lynch episodes. Um, Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard people uh, talk about this. I've actually never read anything with him specifically, but most people sort of acknowledge that like he... He wasn't, he wasn't an actor. I mean, it was, you know, it was like Lynch doing his magical thing that he could do with non-actors, which was amazing. Um, And then maybe didn't always work so well with... uh, with everybody else. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, yeah, I think 
Anyway, I'm sorry. I, I think, I mean, Ray Wise is like the star of both of these episodes, really, though. I mean, he kind of overshadows everything uh, in episodes 15 and 16 leading up to his demise at the end of episode 16. Um, yeah. The I will say that as much as Ray Wise is the star of these episodes, it's only in that last episode that he's in that I finally get scenes with him that I don't think really work. Mm. Um, specifically when he's speaking as Bob. And he's oh. sort of like, he's doing this, you, you, you compared him to sort of Jack Nicholson in The Shining, where he's really, he's really doing like the, he's really being inhabited by Bob and sort of doing this evil, cackly, campy performance. And for some reason, that's the only time that Ray Wise's performance doesn't really work for me. Like, it just goes a little bit too far. It feels oh, a bit, a bit like uh, the Wyndham Earl stuff to come, honestly. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, maybe this is, again, me, my having watched this show when I was very young and having it sort of just burned into my DNA. But but most of the episode 16, uh, which was directed by Tim Hunter, who is one of the better, uh, as we've talked about in the past, like one of the stronger non-Lynch directors on the show. Um, there are some things I really don't like about episode 16. But overall, I, I the stuff with, with Leland in the jail is, is, for me, some of my favorite non-Lynch directed stuff i i find it i mean i think you're right simon i think he's definitely pushing the edge but for me it it stays it works especially because you get such an extreme shift at the end of the episode to leland um quote returning i mean i i think yeah we've talked about this before but like i i buy less this i'm not so into this idea that there's like a separate bob and then a separate leland and like it's such a clear-cut thing but the show does still get this very strong like emotional opposition where you move to the space that is supposed to be more leland at the end and it's such a kind of sad like it's just a very it just lets ray wise do so much with that performance so for me it works but i can understand why it might be a little yeah. extreme the um i, I wanted to t- I, I realized i never actually talked about it and I, I'd like to get your take on it as well ethan i think the the sequence with ben and jerry and the dancing girl I don't know, like, I totally get where you're coming from, Kate, but it, I think it works for me just because of how, I think it lines up really nicely with what they're trying to do with Ben in these episodes, where he's just kind of unraveling and sort of trying to, you know, uncover other parts of himself, which, as we'll see, doesn't necessarily end up creating the most riveting television ever, <laughs> but, um... Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like um, I really like Richard Bamer's performance in these episodes. He's one of the more sort of consistently entertaining presences. And something about that sequence, like it's definitely someone, you know, we've talked about, you know, these ersatz Lynch moments of people trying out uh, things that he might do and maybe not quite landing. But I actually think it's one of the better sequences of of of, uh, of that kind of thing. I also like when they cut back and the the two young Horn brothers have still have the Coke bottle glasses. I don't know. I, I find that kind of funny. But uh, I also really enjoy uh, Jerry in in these episodes. In this episode in particular, um, I specifically uh, what's it when Cooper suddenly just has all that the stats about him. It's like last in your class of two hundred or. <laughs> He's like, as your as your brother and your friend, I strongly advise you to get a better lawyer. <laughs> these are these are good uh, good bits. I also like that Jerry has basically the undercut fade haircut that all hipsters have nowadays. Twin Peaks was like kind of really ahead of its time in more ways than one. Or we've just looped back to the 1990s and there's nothing is new. Everything is old. <laughs> Which definitely both can be true. That is uh, true. 
I want to give Scott Frost credit for giving Hawk the best line he will ever get. And actually, I have to say the the line about how some of his some of his friends are white people, uh, some of his best friends are white people rather. That feels that's that's like kind of an ahead of its time comic moment. I gotta say the the hating on white people joke. Mm-hmm. That's uh that feels very forward thinking. It's true. I don't know. I mean, uh, there's there's some. I think there's some totally reasonable forward thinking stuff in these episodes. Uh, maybe we'll we'll come back to it towards the end of the episode. But I think the Denise, the the introduction of Denise slash Dennis holds up remarkably well, considering that this was like a 1990s portrayal of. Um, I don't know. Presumably, sort of like it's unclear what terminology should you should use. They use transvestite on the show, but it's not. I mean, that I think no longer would necessarily be. Maybe the only or correct terminology you'd use. Anyway, there is some forward-thinking stuff here. I think it that works well, for sure. So one thing I wanted to talk about with um, episode 15 and then uh, 16 as well, because it's something that people mention so much in relation to these episodes. Uh, like, Mark Frost has talked about it a lot. A lot of the cast, there's sort of this myth around this is basically that these episodes, after they revealed the killer, they wanted to have uh, a story arc that would be about Cooper and Audrey becoming romantically linked. And we, we've mentioned this before in the past, and of course it doesn't happen, and there's a lot of um, scuttlebutt as to why uh, Kyle McLaughlin said he didn't think it would be a good idea for his character because an FBI agent wouldn't be sleeping with a high school girl. Uh, there's like backstage gossip that it was maybe because Laura Flynn Boyle was upset that Cheryl and Fenn was getting all this attention as a character, blah, blah, blah. Like there, there's a lot of sort of backstory around this. I actually think it's really interesting because I am, I think I'm in the minority as someone who actually is cu- quite happy with the fact that they never developed that storyline, that it, it, it's sort of like they give it a kind of respectful end here. Um, there's some nice moments between, Audrey and Coop uh, in one of these episodes, I can't remember which, over both, actually. Um, but I don't know. For me, I think it is a nice... Um, I don't know. I think it speaks to the fact that like people tend to be so simplistic about the idea that any kind of meaningful relationship between a man and a woman on television necessarily needs to end in like a sexual relationship. And I think there's something to, to the fact that like Cooper's character is almost a father figure to Audrey. Like he, that's sort of part of the attraction is he's this like caring kind of stand up person who is the exact opposite of Ben Horn. And I actually think it's like, there's something to the fact that the show gives an example of a father figure behaving like a father figure rather than like an incestuous maniac. I I mean, I think there's something to that, (laughs) but, um, I bring it up just because like the writers have often used it as an example of like why they were scrambling to come up with another main plot uh, point in these episodes, which leads to this introduction of Denise Dennis in uh, the next episode. But um, anyway, I thought people might have thoughts about that. So I wanted to bring it up. The, I mean, it's, it's tough people. One of the most difficult things to quantify or, or talk about, in a, especially in a, in a in a long running series, is is the idea of chemistry, and like how do you how do you quantify on screen chemistry? I'm not sure, but I think we can all say that Cooper and and uh, Audrey have it, mm-hmm. like they just they do, and I think you know people people respond to that, uh, and it's you know I totally get where people are coming from. I also totally agree with you, Kate, that I think on a character level it makes sense that that wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's. I think it's fair that people were uh, oh, sure. dissatisfied with, uh, with with the uh, I guess lack of consummation, as it were. Um, I'm not sure that we really needed uh, Audrey clarifying that she ne- that she never banged anyone <laughs> at the. Uh... Are you just chuckling because I said bang? <laughs> no, well, both and the clarification, <laughs> all of it, you know. Um, yeah, like yeah. 
I don't know. And also, it seems to imply at the same time that she's a virgin, which uh, which actually I think helps that helps sell the whole thing because if she's a virgin, then him doing anything is really extra creepy. Um, I don't know, Ethan. Where do you land on the on the Audrey Coop dilemma? Well, I, I will say I actually think like something that bugs me is how people seem to throw all of season two under the bus when I think, to be honest, like obviously there's a bad stretch, but to me, most of the most iconic Twin Peaks moments are in season two. But I will say, I think Audrey overall in season two feels like a giant missed opportunity. I know that, for example, the reason the uh, her stay at One-Eyed Jacks was so extended is I believe Sherilyn Fenn had pneumonia in real life. So oh. they had to like, uh, they had to basically minimize her presence throughout the the beginning of the second season and i kind of get the feeling just throughout most of season two that they don't really know what to do with her yeah i like i read something with sherlyn fenn um talking about uh this this moment that you get after and you can see it happen here like after there's the episode where she has the conversation with coop where they sort of acknowledge like you know that they care about each other but you know they're only going to be friends kind of thing um the next episode, Audrey's clothing has changed pretty dramatically, and now she's wearing these, like, oversized, you know, pre-proto-scully business suit things, right, of the late 80s, early 90s, which are awful, and they look terrible on everybody. But, um, and, and apparently Sherilyn Fenn sort of talked about this as, like, something she was driving, because she was tired of being this, like, sweater girl on the show that was just this sort of object for sexual attention and wanted her character to be kind of more of a you know, like a player on the show and, and she was wanting to change this outfit. And my response, like I was reading this and I was like, wow. Like, so that was sort of how loosey goosey things were getting was that like the, the actors could just sort of be like, well, I'm going to change my, (laughs) my clothing. And like, I want to be a different character now because it did seem like there was a fair amount of that. Like she wasn't the only one where there was sort of that kind of um, story behind things, but Anyway, it does feel like her character changes, uh, goes somewhere else in the next few episodes, as we'll see, and we can talk about that more later. But it really does seem like for a good stretch here, they don't know what to do with Cheryl and Fenn. Ah, uh, the early 90s, when you could become a fetish object just by wearing sweaters. Yes. <laughs> it was a different time. We should also mention uh, Bobby wears a bandana in this episode. Yeah, what's up with that? It seems to come out of nowhere a little. I wonder <laughs> if he just brought it to set with him, to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that seems about right. <laughs> yeah, well, I, th- I actually I thought for a moment that maybe it was supposed to be sort of a visual cue to make us think of Leo, like mm. like that he was sort of occupying Leo's space and sort of starting to dress like him maybe. And and we actually have another scene where he puts on his suit. So in that sense, it kind of makes sense. But it it totally it looks completely weird. It, um, it, it was just funny. Everyone was talking about that David Foster Wallace think piece today, and having also watched the episode today and. There's a lot of bandana on the timeline today. <laughs> um, but it's funny, too, when you mentioned when he slicks back his hair and then dresses up to go to Ben Horn's office, as we'll talk about in a later episode. He kind of, I don't know if you've ever seen the cover of the, the 90s video game Wall Street Kid, but that's what it reminded me of. <laughs> uh, one one note that I, I made about this first episode, and it, it doesn't end, is that, my God, the restaurant critic thing just goes and goes and goes like, obviously it was like what newspaper would th- that review be in like what what newspaper would want a review of like some low-end diner in a small town 
I don't know. I mean, I guess like I can kind of see that, like this idea of you know tourists driving through the small towns and they want reviews. I guess. I mean, it makes less sense that a, a restaurant critic would have like two weeks or whatever. It's not two weeks, I guess, because it's still supposed to be short in timeline. But like three or four days to hang out and. Um, I don't know. I I actually don't mind the stuff with. I mean, could we do the spoil of who MT Wentz is? <laughs> oh no! I was just about to say these episodes reveal the true villain of 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 the Twin Peaks universe, Norma's horrible mother. <laughs> I have to. Admit, I kind of like the stuff with Norma and her mother. Like, you know, maybe it's not so fair to the mother character who's just sort of inexplicably awful. But you know, just this, the worst. She is the worst. But I mean, this is a melodrama, right? I mean, you know, people are stomping on each other's dreams for no reason all the time. Um, but I don't know. I like this stuff. I mean, the, the woman who plays uh, Norma's mother is the actress Jane Greer, who was the female lead in Out of the Past, which is like a really famous um, film noir. She's good in it. And it, I honestly, I like it. I like that storyline mostly just because it gives it gives Norma good stuff to do that, again, is about sort of really using Peggy Lipton's like... I don't know, impressive ability to be both kind of like put upon so much, but then, you know, subtly speak up for herself. I really love it when she like tells her mother off. I, I, there's some great stuff in there. Um, yeah. yeah. I assume in the new series, it'll be Norma worrying about bad Yelp reviews. <laughs> probably. That's probably true. Uh, we also, well, it's not for a couple more episodes, but there's also another uh, famous reunion uh, between, Norma between Peggy Lipton and another actor. Does anybody know this story? No. No. So the guy, the actor who shows up in uh, possibly the next, possibly episode 16, I don't remember, um, who plays uh, the main FBI agent who arrives with the Mountie to, you know, put Cooper under on suspension. Um, that actor is played by, sorry, that actor is named Clarence Williams III. Uh, and Clarence Williams III was one of the other leads on the Mod Squad. Uh, Peggy Lipton was the lead on the Mog Squad along with this guy and one other person. And two or three episodes from now, we get a very brief meeting between the two of them at uh, the diner. She serves them some pie and they get like a nice little moment together as a Mod Squad reunion. Wow. I didn't know that. Wow. Nerdy TV history to, stuff, to, I guess. To satisfy, to satisfy that, ve- that weird Venn diagram of like <laughs> Mod Squad fans and Twin Peaks fans. There's, Finally only, there's only one mod squad, and it stars Claire Danes and Giovanni Ribisi. Thank you oh, very God. much. <laughs> oh, God. You're really earning the vulgar credentials today. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else specific to these episodes that we? I mean, I we have to talk about. Um, we're, 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 I've already totally given up on on isolating things in individual episodes, but I think the the whole climax of the, of Leland's story, where. Um, what we we get a rare instance of a comic moment dovetailing uh sort of elegantly with a dramatic one when we get the um the uh fire alarm sorry the smoke alarm going off thereby setting off the sprinklers thereby setting up uh this very dramatic staging for Leland's death and i have to say everything about that sequence to me is very inspired it works even better because before, even before you get to the stuff with the, with the jail, there's some amazing stuff in the roadhouse again. Like I, I think Tim Hunter is very good at working in the realm of Lynch and the sequences in the roadhouse where Coop is sort of 
you know, the point of the episode is that Coop sort of acquiesces to going on this vision quest or, or whatever I think Rose, uh, Rosenfeld calls it. Um, and is just sort of brings everybody to the roadhouse and waits for like magic to happen. I really love that sequence. Like when the giant returns again and, um, you get the amazing shot, for example, of the giant holding out the ring and then he disappears and the ring falls to the ground and, and, and the reveal of, um, Leland is is so perfectly kind of orchestrated with with Leland walking in and uh, the the interchange between Leland and the waiter about the gum the gum is going to come back in style and these beautiful like blue freeze frames that Tim Hunter uses of the two of them mm-hmm. as Cooper moves back to the to the lodge and and I, I, the other thing I love about that that I forget every time how this happens but I love that Laura is the one who reveals who killed her like that that it isn't Cooper solving the mystery right it isn't like like, oh, investigation and this male detective like comes in and fixes it. It's I just love the fact that Laura is the one who ultimately get to says to gets to say the name of her killer. Like Laura is the one who does that. I think that's amazing. Um and then anyway, yes, then you end up at the jail and the jail stuff I think is all staged really beautifully. It works super well. I, I think what's though with this episode, what's a little you get you get you feel Lynch's absence, I think, from the beginning. I think the first line of the episode is this is the same ghoul who killed Laura. So I, I think with this episode throughout, it spells things out, I think, a little more than other episodes would, or at least the Lynch episodes would. I I, I don't know. Maybe it's like just I think of – I don't know if you've ever read Frost's original script for the finale of the show. No. But it's – let's just say compared to what we got, it's, it's not very good. And I mm. kind of feel like – I don't want to disfrost. Maybe I'm just thinking this because he has the, one of the worst accounts on Twitter right now. But uh, he, I get the feeling Frost is maybe you could call him a little prosaic. And I think you need you kind of need, I guess, Frost to make Lynch digestible for a mainstream audience. But I think you yeah. need Lynch to make Frost a little more mysterious and make mm-hmm. his interests a bit more, you know, mysterious. <laughs> Have you, Ethan, have you looked at all at that book that's the secret history of Twin Peaks? Yes, I have. Yeah, Simon, did you ever end up looking at it? No, I got the audiobook and I found it very difficult to listen to. Yeah, it was, it's unbearable in audiobook form. Um, but I will say it's not like, and I, maybe this will turn people off and everyone should please, you know, feel free to check out the book and make your own conclusions and everything. But I, I found it just, I found it not good. I, I I have had a really hard time getting through it. Um, I think I'm about halfway through it, and I think it's it's very much what you're talking about, Ethan. It's it tends very much just towards the kind of yeah, like obsession with um, I don't know, not obsession even like the idea that kind of amassing uh, detail and narrative is is enough. Like it, it does something on its own, and I and I think you know Mark Frost very much plays to the kind of um, fan or or. Uh, audience member who really likes the sort of attention to detail, like, you know, like this incredible universe they're building around the show of the mythology and the history and all of this. And, and Frost brain really works well with that stuff. But the problem is, is again, without Lynch to kind of balance it out and give it this like emotional effective quality, it ends up really just being like a series of, yeah, like just descriptions of events and details. It, it doesn't, it doesn't particularly hold my interest. Um, and I have some maybe other issues with that book, but maybe we can talk about that when we get to the new series or something. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I'll be very curious to see what, like what level of influence um, that material has on the new season, but uh, we are trying to avoid speculation on that. So let's, uh, let's continue with that. 
So is there anything else in these uh, first two episodes we wanted to specifically mention before we sort of dive into... Uh, let's let's be honest. We're diving into the dark days after that. It's true. Um, I do. Okay, so we I have to again wax rhapsodic just a little bit more about Leland's death because I, I think there is some beautiful stuff in there. I mean, I think as now that I will. Well, let me put one pointer and then I'll completely contradict what I just said. But um, one thing I wanted to note, and because this has always kind of fascinated me, is the shots that you get. Uh, the Tim Hunter's sort of doing of Leland in the jail cell with the water, even before the water, these sort of under like low level shots up towards um, Leland's face. And you get this sort of maniacal kind of demon face. I, for anybody who's noticed, um, Ray Wise's hair is like very different in those scenes than it was previous, right? I mean, Ray Wise had this sort of like super thick head of hair in the first season and a half. And now his hair is like, like spiky and falling out and like spindly. And I always thought it was maybe just some like genius costume designer or something who was like, let's like take a razor to his hair and make his hair crazy. That was not at all what was happening. I found out like doing research for this that, um, apparently because Ray Wise was having to constantly go to the hair salon to have his hair bleached white his hair was just starting to fall out <laughs> oh god like crazy um so anyway he was like don't worry it grew back and my hair's fine again i was like oh good <laughs> um but yeah have you seen dana ashbrook lately because he he, had, he now has that same hair which i find odd yes it's true he he looks very striking or something with the gray hair it's and very skinny in the face he looks quite different um, yeah, yeah. I, was- I know. I just said we were avoiding speculation, but I'm actually v- so fascinated to, to see like the the like the influence of aging on on these characters and and on this universe because so much of Twin Peaks is about sort of young beautiful people getting into scrapes, and uh, this uh, the new show obviously can't be about that at least not with the original characters, and I'm I'm very curious to see what sort of effect that has on the, on the tone. Yeah, it's true. I suspect that Lynch will do something sim- uh, similar, though, where there will be, like, an introduction of a whole new young cast that will be, like, the half of the show that will be the young half, and then he- these guys will all take the place of people like Ben Horn and Catherine and stuff. Although, of course, they're still in it, too, but... Um... Like the Muppet babies of Twin Peaks? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, I was just going to add as well, I, I I do think it's worth pointing out how, how beautiful that last sequence is with... Uh, with Coop reading from the Tibetan Book of the Dead to Leland, uh, I find it like a heartbreaking sequence. And it's, again, it's worth pointing out like the levels of sort of empathy involved in that, like that we've just been revealed that this guy is this like horrible murderer. And and sure, the show has this like structural framework that allows you to maybe like emotionally separate Leland from Bob, but I still think it's pretty remarkable that this is the response that you get to like this final reveal of this killer that everyone's been trying to find forever. The final, you know, like the final deal with the killer is, is this sort of very like empathetic, like incredible kind of emotional response to him dying is, is something. Um, and then I will point out as well that uh, to speak to what Ethan mentioned earlier, the last sequence in that episode, I really don't like, and I've never liked it. And it's exactly what you said, which is, which is that it's this hyper didactic scene where you get, Rosenfeld, Sheriff Truman, Major Briggs for some reason, and Cooper all out in the woods becoming these like didactic mouthpieces for like this philosophizing of like what is Bob and like what is evil. Yeah. And it's it really and and you know what? What if Bob was one of us? (laughs) Um and like I think it might have worked. Like the writing is not great no matter how you slice it, but like it might have worked better. But for some reason Tim Hunter is doing all these like Dutch angles on the characters, like low Dutch angle. It's just very weird. It's very weird choices. And I, I just like 
I mean, I don't know. Could you imagine Lynch having a scene like where characters all just stand around and are like, well, I mean, this is what it means. No, what about this? Well, we have to fight the evil. It just is such a weird, it does not work for me at all. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're right. There is some of that in Dune. Um, right. But yeah. There's not enough spice law going on in these episodes. That's true. Um, the, uh, I will say that I, I do find it kind of kind of entertaining that like these these careening shots through the woods are very like Sam Raimi esque, mm-hmm. which is like a weird thing that I didn't expect to think about. My last thing about these episodes that I want to mention is one of the weirder sort of character motivation sequences involves uh, Jack Nance visiting Ben in prison oh, yeah. with this with this tape. I'll pay anything. What does she want? You okay there, Benji? In exchange for my testimony here. You will sign the mill and Ghostwood Estates back over to me. I will consider letting you keep your precious hotel. A representative of mine will come to you with the documents within 24 hours. If you won't cooperate, well, I'm confident that you'll go on from here to excel at one or another of the many fine career opportunities offered by the federal prison system. That's so nice to see you again. Oh, she set me up. That Catherine. She set me up. She's a caution, isn't she? The thing that's weird about this sequence, I mean, there's a few things that are weird about the sequence, but he he comes in to like maniacally taunt him with this tape where his wife talks about having sex <laughs> with this, this man. Yeah. And he's like, so there. Yeah. <laughs> Pete is a cuck and he loves it. <laughs> I always feel like he's more like Catherine's like younger brother or something like than like husband. Yeah. It's just like they're such a weird... I mean, it's kind of endearing because then Catherine goes back to being like evil again, right? Like as soon as she gets back home and she's like, oh, wait, I've taken a mild break from being evil. Back to it. Make Josie my maid. Oh. <laughs> Making Josie her maid is, is yeah. I'd forgotten about that in, until uh, just a few minutes ago when I rewatched this. Did being Mr. Tojimura teach her nothing? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. Uh, um. Yeah, so maybe it's time to talk about these these episodes because um, we are hitting the roughly twenty minutes left mark, which mm-hmm. is what we had originally set out. And yeah, maybe since we're already on the subject, we should probably just get Josie out of the way, much like the show did for a while, and then inexplicably brought her back for some stuff. Uh, <laughs> God, Josie, what a mess. The um, I mean, what I find really like really just dispiriting about uh her presence on the show is uh everything um just the the way that she's like totally dependent on sheriff truman to like yeah. try to get her out of stuff and then then she ends up being totally dependent on Catherine, who makes her her slave yeah. like oh i don't know what they're going for with this but it's none of it is good it also strikes me as very weird that Josie would have been given all of this money that she was like it's my money like she clearly had this relationship to it where it was something that she owned and yet there was like it's implied that it it somehow went to uh Eckhart or was with Mr. Lee or something and that's how she lost it all but it just like it doesn't make any sense with her character like this woman who is so clearly like 
had been creating this sort of thing for herself and she's all of a sudden just sort of at total loose ends like two episodes later it just it doesn't make a ton of sense to me like that she was making like lock boxes and things with like secret plans with ben horn and like then all of a sudden she's just completely i don't know none of it makes much sense but such it is now we are in the universe of aspects of twin peaks that that don't make a ton of sense that don't make a ton of sense in like an irritating way i mean there have always been things about Twin Peaks that didn't necessarily make a ton of linear sense, but they were always, like, fascinating or alluring. And then there's just stuff that's irritating. Um, speaking of stuff that's irritating, mm-hmm. I mean, the ep- the this episode... Crap, hold on, let me pull up my thing. Um, episode 17 opens with... Uh, I believe it, it It opens with The Wake, right? Yeah. Uh, well, no, it opens the, with uh, it opens with um, Coop and Sarah Palmer, and, and there's, like, a nice interchange, actually, between them. Where, right, yeah. yes, absolutely. After that, though, we get the the wake sequence, which seems to go on into eternity. Um, <laughs> that wake sequence just, is so misguided. It's I, it's okay, it's quite a, bad. Why, when we get to episode um, uh, seventeen, why do they decide to skip ahead three days? This has like always been this thing that completely mystifies me about this because you have like Mark Frost and everybody saying, "Oh well, we we should have built up the Wyndham Earl storyline sooner. We should have done all these other things sooner. Like we should have blah 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 blah." And yet, and then they decide that after Leland dies, they're going to skip ahead three days and skip over what is could have been some of the richest stuff about the town dealing with the guilt and the aftermath of this incident. And they skip over it completely. And you get almost no one acknowledging what has gone on. You get this interchange between Sarah and Coop, where, where you know, Coop, again, sort of lets the audience and Sarah off the hook and says, oh, well, um, he was inhabited by this evil spirit and, and that's just what it happened and blah, blah, blah. And then that's sort of it. And I, for me, this is like one of the clearest departures of, from what I think Frost and Lynch were doing when they set the show in motion in the first place, which was like really trying to deal with some of the horrors that get, you know, that are kind of structuring elements of like a sort of bourgeois domestic experience. And I, I find it mystifying that they just abandon this stuff. And again, like you've already mentioned this, Simon, but um, Grace Zabriskie is being criminally underused. For anybody who who read the kind of secret diary of Laura Palmer and sort of thought about this at all, there is some incredibly rich stuff there with the idea of Grace Zabriskie as, you know, like the codependent mother, like the denying mother, the mother who who has known that something was wrong for a long time and has never looked at it. And the whole town is like a codependent denying town. And and the show just abandons that in order to run to a wake where Nadine is wearing like a 12 year old's outfit and being like, can boys see up my skirt? I just find it a mystifying <laughs> series of choices. Mystifying. I, I do love though, when Sarah's like, it was that man with his awful Dirty, disgusting hair. I know. That stuff brings out some of the less, like, kind of the ickier class politics stuff around Bob. Like, the idea that Bob is evil because he wears a denim jacket and has long hair is, like, less than great. And that line definitely uh, brings that out a bit. Oh, man. But, Kate, how can we we strike out against a sequence that features the the riveting tale of the mayor and his brother? (laughs) Okay. I have to admit, I don't mind... The brothers, because I like, I kind of love the actor who plays Dwayne uh, Milford, the the like harumphing old man. He it makes me laugh. I can't help it. I don't know if it's that he reminds me of like my grandfather or something, but like this old man making perpetual jokes to himself and like laughing at it for himself, like kind of cracks me up every time. But it, it is not good story. It's not a good storyline. But I, 
I don't hate it as much as some as I hate the other stuff. Speaking of not a good storyline, on a message board I post on years ago, they did a poll for what is the single worst storyline of Twin Peaks season two. And I got to tell you, the runaway winner with, I believe, 16 votes that like the next runner up was like four was, hey, let's follow James out of town while he gets entangled with this widow, blah, blah, blah. And we, we, we get the beginnings of that with Evelyn Marsh in this last episode. And oh, my God. <laughs> I do love, though, the, the guitar lick that opens the next episode with uh, <laughs> James on his motorcycle. It sounds so unlike all the other the bottle of Mente score, but I guess you know he had to he had to spice up the show somehow that week, so he busted out the guitar and did the boom, boom. You you can put the clip in. I can't do it really, but I think you did it just fine. That shot, that shot of James on his motorcycle, and the like, the music is the music. It just it makes my soul like shrivel up. And then and then when he arrives at that bar and walks in and sees Evelyn Marsh at the bar, I, it just, I can't even list all the things that are wrong with these sequences, but they are so brutal. And, and again, I mean, I, this again goes back to your uh, surprisingly like uh, versatile comment from like an early podcast, Simon, which is this idea of the show's concepts of sexiness being all over the damn place. Like Evelyn is I don't know, the, the most, like, extreme version of, like, I don't know, what a 16-year-old guy would be like, okay, let's find a sexy, like, it just, there are so many reasons why it, it doesn't work, but it, it, and it's not funny, like, it could be comic, but it's not comic, it's, and it reads as very, like, just desperate, on the point of the show, I, it, it really, that poor actress, like, I, I can't, I mean, I can't help it. I sort of hate her, and I'm sure it's not her fault entirely, <laughs> but it's just, it is such a brutal, brutal role, and it is so poorly written, and like, I just, ugh, God, I hate it. And and as we've already stated, James Marshall is not everybody's favorite character, and then to give him this whole big storyline by himself outside of Twin Peaks, like, why would we want to leave Twin Peaks in the first place? Ugh, it's not good. I like to think that, like, a couple people involved in the production thought, backdoor pilot oh my god oh my god (laughs) james is that what it just be called oh would the would the theme be that guitar lick oh hell yeah (laughs) oh and then the opening credits would be him wearing that sweater that he wears in the final episode we have today where they're out like working on the car and he's wearing like a cosby sweater and and like Evelyn's like, oh, I want you to stay, James. And he's wearing a Cosby sweater. And you're like, what is going on? Like, what? no, no, no. I think it would have been called "Ride into the Darkness." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. so, he's, he's got I, but feelings. I mean, he's got feelings. I don't want to. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he's having all the feelings. Um, I don't want to. Res- I don't want to make it sound like James hogs all the badness. Do you see what I did there? Hogs. <laughs> Um, in these episodes, uh, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff just all over the place. It just feels wrong. Like, like when Audrey says, I like to lick yeah. or like, Ooh, Ooh, that did, that didn't feel good. What, what about, <laughs> yeah. uh, what about a uh, little Nikki? Oh, <laughs> little Nikki. Little Nikki is my second least favorite element of the show. I get <laughs> little Nikki is brutal. It's, it's brutal. I, Yeah. 
It's like the one thing of the show that's sort of a sign of the times. I remember this is the same year that both Problem Child and Home Alone came out, so they got to do oh, yeah. some you know, wacky kid hijinks. I mean, I think, I think if I'm in like a generous enough mood, I can say him like him swinging Andy's seat and making him fall out is like anti comedy. If I'm like in a generous mood, but <laughs> I don't. It's to be fair, it's not that like it's the it's not even the character of Little Nicky's fault. It's just although later when it, it's just everything that happens around him, it's just this like never ending kind of like trying to find a way to make Andy and uh, and Dick's plot lines seem interesting in relation to Lucy. It just gets stupider and stupider as it goes on. Like, we're not we're not even remotely at the badness yet. It will just get so much worse. Um, uh, yeah. I just can't imagine being in that writer's room and thinking, you know what this show needs right now more than anything? It needs more Dick Tremaine. Like, where, where's that guy? What's he thinking? What's he doing? We should mention, I mean, that David Lynch has a vocal cameo in one of these episodes. Uh... As uh, I, and I think it's in a way supposed to be. I, I wonder if it was sly commentary from the writers by how they they felt their relationship with him was at that point, where he just kind of you know he's uh, you hear him essentially through an intercom speaking, like yeah, okay, good, yeah, uh huh. Which because if <laughs> if to the best of my knowledge, Lynch had basically ditched the show to do an art show in Japan at the, at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah, I think so. I just imagine him like yelling from a Japanese museum while yeah. while they're shooting that. Little little Nicky, great. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean th- this is maybe a longer conversation and I don't know if we want to get into it for this episode, but um yeah, this idea of Frost and Lynch and like what happens in terms of their relationship to the show and like, you know, whether they kind of quote abandon it or not because Frost also basically leaves Frost like goes off to work on Storyville, which is a film that he made uh, with James Spader. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Again, there's a lot Storyville, that film we've all seen. Exactly. Um, I don't know. There's just, there's so much talk about this idea of like, yeah, well, I, I find, I don't know, I have just some, like, basic kind of problems with the way that a lot of this stuff around season two gets narrativized after Leland's kill. Like, A, people, like, Frost being like, oh, well, we really wanted to have this, like, Coop and Audrey plot line, and then when Kyle McLaughlin wouldn't do that, the show went to hell. Uh, like, oh, we should and it's like, you guys really? Like, not being able to have Coop sleep with Audrey is that was your ace in the hole? Like that was the thing that was going to like structure <laughs> these episodes? Like, it's just very clear to me that um I don't know. And I get it. It's like, it's uh, probably psychological misery having your show be forced to do something you didn't want it to be to do. But as I said, like a couple of episodes ago, I don't, they knew from like the beginning of this season that they weren't going to get that many episodes before they had to reveal Leland's killer. And there is a real way in which they just didn't do any of the work necessary to build up the stuff going forward beyond that. And like, again, I, I say that because there's a lot of tension here. Like I think the actors and stuff have always been pretty like, kind about it but people were really angry at lynch and frost when they and lynch particularly i think when they basically just sort of left the show to like flounder for these next sort of six to seven episodes and it's i don't know it's not a good scene and i i get i get why frost and lynch would have been pissed and would have wanted to leave but i also think that it, the show didn't have to be this bad. I really do. And of course, you know, like there's the production schedule and all this stuff. They're having to make an episode a week and how hard that is. But I, I still don't think, I think there could have been things done differently. And I mean, there's stuff that is theoretically promising, like giving Major Briggs more to do. Yeah. Um, you know, cause he's, you know, he's a really great character and a great performance. And like he jibes with Cooper really well. And there's a chance to kind of expand the mythology in potentially an interesting way. 
But boy, does that get squandered. Holy well, crow. The alien yeah. abduction thing is, I think, an example of something they kind of come up with and then quickly abandon knowing it's kind of stupid. Do you like how that scene is preceded by uh, Bob inhabiting the owl and watching Cooper pee? <laughs> Urinating in the open air. Yep. Um, I, I like, I, I do think again that they, like what they talk about is the kind of the writers talk about is the structuring element of these three middle episodes here, which is the, um, the arrival of, uh, Denise and this coop being framed by Jean Renault. I like, I don't mind that stuff. I think it works relatively well. Um, you know, like at least there's some kind of narrative motion there. Uh, but it's, I don't know. I, I feel like they made such a, like the show makes such a poor series of decisions around skipping the time after Laura dies. And, and you know, like it just, there's so many things that are, that go wrong. It's, it's hard to even try to find like an original thing. Um, but anyway, there's some stuff I don't well, mind. Yeah. I don't mind Duchovny. I don't, I don't know how you guys feel. I've never minded Duchovny as a character. I kind of like him in this, but I don't know. What do people think? No, I, th- I think Duchovny is very good as, as Denise. And like, I didn't remember anything about, uh, Duchovny's scenes or what exactly happens with that character but give them credit for 1990 could have been a hell of a lot worse mm-hmm. I mean if you consider Ace Ventura four years later in 1994 and yeah. that film's depiction of ugh. yeah indeed yeah no, yeah. I know it's true even like the, the characters reactions to her like yeah some of them are not uh, not the best, but they're not. But they're not. There's nothing like outright toxic. I wouldn't say. The, which, the, uh, the the funniest thing is when when Hawk doesn't shake her hand. When Hawk doesn't shake Denise's hand, that's the that's the kind of like strongest reaction. And I was like, huh, it's a little odd. <laughs> but uh, but the rest of it, yeah, is like people are sort of like, oh, you know, like and and Coop, of course, is lovely to everybody. So Coop is lovely. Yeah. Obviously, there's some there's some nebulousness to the sort of origin story of that character where we don't really know um, how we should refer to them or like what what the exact you know categorization of of, yeah. of sexuality would be. So like, and, and that's I think the amorphousness actually helps because you know we can't say this is a poor depiction of something rather because it's really it's really quite nebulous. So in a way, it was sort of probably accidentally smart. Um, but uh, the I mean, we can't we can't keep talking without getting to. Uh, Nadine and poor Mike, <laughs> poor Mike. Uh, so we're we're now deep in the thick of Super Nadine. I I like that it takes Super Nadine for us to see the high school. Yeah, no kidding, right? <sighs> I I do feel like the Nadine cheerleader costume is one of the most popular amongst Twin Peaks cosplayers. <laughs> Not the James in a Cosby sweater outfit. <laughs> well, one day, one day. <laughs> um, yeah, Nadine. I, I don't know. I, yeah, Super Nadine is like not good, but again, it's not my most hated thing. Like, I would take a Super Nadine uh, scene any day over a James and Evelyn scene. So I, I don't know. Oh man! Can you just put me out of my misery and just remind me of how long the James Nevelyn thing goes on for? It goes on for five episodes, Simon. Oh, yeah, at least Lord. at least to the Diane Keaton episode, right? Yeah, the Diane Keaton episode is the worst one. That is the one that is just unbearable. Ethan, but, yeah, I, I felt really bad when I realized that we weren't going to be covering the Diane Keaton episode uh, in your stretch of episodes because I feel like that would have been right in your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. 
We'll see. So I'm I'm sorry about that. <laughs> well, uh, we um we 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 should be we should be wrapping up. Is there anything about these last couple episodes that we uh, actually enjoyed? Uh, I, I still think the actors have not quite, you know, the, 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 you know, it, they haven't surrendered eyes, their will to live yet. Yeah, their eyes are not quite dead. You know, <laughs> they're still they're still giving it their all. I mean, I mean, James Marshall giving it his all isn't a lot, but <laughs> I, there's a couple of things that I kind of hadn't really remembered uh, that I think are, are working well here. And I kind of wish that the show was doing a was just simply functioning better so you could appreciate them more. But I think there's like a couple of great sequences with Coop, for example, when he's talking to this other interviewing FBI agent guy and the FBI agent guy is like, well, why aren't you defending yourself? Like, where's your evidence? And and Coop sort of gets a, get this speech that's kind of great where Coop is talking about, you know, I'm not, I'm actually less concerned with this stuff now. And, and the imp- implication being like now that he's dealing with things like Bob and the, you know, the White Lodge, which we now start getting references to for the first time, the White Lodge. Um, and, and Coop is saying things like, I'm, I'm playing, I'm looking beyond the board. Like I'm looking to a life beyond fear and living with love. Like all these things, like that's a great scene. There's, there's some great moments there. Um, yeah, I, I'm glad that we start to get talks of the talk of the White Lodge. Uh, and I wanted to point out another kind of slightly bizarre bit of trivia. Um, so the Super Nadine's uh, coach, the guy who says, have you ever considered going out for the wrestling team? Uh, that actor is played by, oh, I believe his name is Ron Taylor. But he is um, sort of like beloved because he was the voice actor of Bleeding Gums Murphy on The Simpsons. Wow. What? Yeah. Who knew? This is this episode has been a, a goldmine of f***ing random-ass trivia. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, this is what I'm doing instead of, like, you know, my dissertation or getting ready for the job market is looking up Twin Peaks <laughs> trivia. Anyway. Um, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm happy to contribute to the slow dismantling of your professional life, Kate. <laughs> As are we all, Simon. As are we all. Uh, anything else we want to mention before we think about wrapping up? I'll say that, I mean, again, people like to throw a lot of season two under the bus, but like I'll compare people like to compare Twin Peaks and the X-Files. I still feel like Twin Peaks has a higher batting average than the X-Files because like I think like even a great season of the X-Files, I think, has as many bad episodes as season two of Twin Peaks. Well, I would have to weigh in on this, but I can't pick a favorite child. I love them both equally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kate has also podcasted with me about the X Files, so you're uh, they we're treading on dangerous ground. So maybe we should just retreat. <laughs> um, I mean, I know we should be like I, I do want to be a little careful about the uh, not just going too hard on the badness of these episodes because I will say again, the, it is kind of a it is a slow descent and then it sort of face plants next week. Next week will be face plant week, but uh, there is still some totally reasonable stuff here and like as people I think at the time were sort of saying like even a bad episode of Twin Peaks is probably more interesting than most of the other stuff that was on television at that point. So it's not there's always something interesting in the episodes and I will say every time you go back to Coop as a character, it's like you can kind of breathe a sigh of relief for a little while because at least they still manage to write Coop all right like they can't really find great things for him to do you know like there's a lot of scenes of him packing his like fishing outfits and stuff which isn't great but uh i mean there's a lot of shots of coop packing and unpacking in these episodes but he's still like they still allow kyle mclaughlin to do his thing and like that really is the soul of the show and it kind of gives gives it a good space still yeah that, that Although, reminds me sorry of one scene i forgot to bring up but when uh, Truman gives him the what is it the tackle and they actually yeah. play the love the love theme over the the, the them together. That's, uh, <laughs> That's true. Kind of progressive, I feel like. 
That's great. I hadn't noticed that. That's great. Yeah, that is a good scene. And and there and it's a, what like a skunk's butt or whatever the, it's called. The green like, butt skunk. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, that's that's a loaded sequence. It also makes um, me laugh that Harry hands it to him in like the dirtiest paper bag <laughs> that I've ever seen. I was like, <laughs> Harry, really? Like you you couldn't get some other kind of container to put this thing in? Anyway, that just makes me laugh. Um. The I mean uh, the last thing I'll say and it's, I I have to end it critically I'm afraid is that like the really unfortunate thing about Cooper in this episode is they saddle him with this tragic past mm. which like I don't it's like where he finally spells out exactly what happened with his you know former lover who was a witness and then this Wyndham Earl business and we'll get to Wyndham Earl later um, but yeah I I really don't like that stuff either and I I assume they cooked that up as part of the way to like you know cock block cooper and audrey but like yeah i don't like it at all i it, it grows on me the stuff with carolyn like well you get her name later but um it, it grows on me i mean i think once by the time you get like the fuller story of it with window merle it works a bit better um but yeah they generally struggle with coop and their romantic stuff like period i mean the joke being and Sherilyn fenn has said this is like kyle mclaughlin gave the reason of you know audrey being too young for uh, Coop to have a romantic relationship with and then later and I won't say who it is for people who are watching along but later Coop becomes involved with someone else and the actress was significantly younger than Sherilyn Fenn which is like really guys <laughs> but anyway they kind of struggle with Coop's romantic life a little bit yeah I guess struggle will define uh, the our, both the show and our podcast for the next couple of weeks as you'll see dear listeners uh, so do bear with us uh, Ethan where can people find uh, these boys are good boys uh, on SoundCloud and also iTunes and Stitcher. So please subscribe to at least one of those or just uh, click on in SoundCloud and pump the plays up. Uh, I also do some freelance writing because I know all uh, editors listen to this podcast. <laughs> so uh, hit me up, evesp at gmail.com if you're interested in that. But uh, yeah, thank you guys for having me on. This was a blast. Yeah, thanks for coming. It was great. Yeah, it was super fun. You're on you're on the Twitters too, right? Uh yes, you can find me at twitter.com slash Ethan Bess. Fantastic. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Hollow Minds, but as always, I tell people don't follow me. Kate is at Cinnamon to that C-I-N-E-M-E-N-T. And that's about it from us. Thank y'all so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.